0: Other side of the glass, and they're cheering as if this were some what? sport who, event. Who are we cheering? Oh, are you guys watching <laughs> curling? Is that what's going on? Curling. Right. I'm a massive curling fan, and I don't care if somebody doesn't like that. How you doing? Welcome to Atheist Experience Live. I'm your host Matt Dillane. Joining me this week, Don Baker. Good to be here. Woo! And there was much rejoicing. <laughs> Uh, We tend to keep the announcements pretty short, but I just thought of of an announcement that's important. The intro song uh, is by Shelley Siegel. And if you go out to YouTube and search for her, everybody watching the show needs to go do this and do it on a semi-regular basis because YouTube's changed this monetization thing and she needs like a thousand distinct views in a certain period of time in order to just stay monetized. And she's freaking awesome. And uh, so go listen to that song. Go listen to whatever other songs. uh, Give Shelley some love because, you know, she she let us use that song. That's awesome. How have you been? Just fine. This is a live call-in show sponsored by the atheist community of Austin, where we beat up on non-believers and idiots around the world. No, that's not the thing. <laughs> that's not really what we're about. Uh, it's funny because when people pull clips out of the show, there's, oh Matt went on an epic rant or hung up on somebody or whatever. And and I think it's because they don't want to post a highlight clip of the 45-minute call we had with somebody who was struggling and and everything was, you know, an honest conversation. Debating about some obscure philosophical problem, right? Yeah.
1: No, that's not good TV. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's always going to happen. Uh, we have a, almost a – all the lines are all full right now, and we've got uh, folks we're going to get to. So if you're on the, on hold, please just stay there and – but Don has yet another failure, another failure show, right? Of
1: Christianity, another topic. Number fifty-four: uh, the Christian influence in Texas. Uh, wanted to take a look at the culture war, and and how it's been playing out in Texas. And some folks are saying, "Ah, oh, the culture war is over." We're, you know, we the.
0: Where do those people live? <laughs> yeah, I'm not we... sure it's over. <laughs> we live in like the most liberal city. Uh, I would say in Texas, but technically we're surrounded by Texas. We're not in Texas. <laughs> right. The only reason we let the governor live here is because that's where they built his house, you know. Yeah. But I'm pumped.
1: But I'm pumped. Anyway. So, but Texas, yeah, is uh, one of the states run primarily by Christian conservatives. And this has been going on a long time. And so you can kind of look at a little bit of how what effect that's had for our state and uh, and apply by their fr- by their she shall know them Matthew 7:16 and there is this uh, in, uh, kind of related to this there's a there's a paper called uh, cross national correlations of quantifiable social health with popular religiosity and secularism in pr- prosperous democracies
0: now, now let me see if I, <laughs> i'm going to use my powers of deduction to determine why people haven't heard of this study, <laughs> right? Oh, the,
1: the author's name was Gregory S. Paul and it was written in 2005 and he correlated religious belief with social ills. Yep. And I think we can make an even stronger case in Texas that religious belief has led to a lot of problems and we can see these causal uh, problems in our with the culture war in Texas, and the culture war is a big thing. There's a lot of different aspects to it, and I'm, I may take up other aspects of this culture war thing another time. But today, I wanted to talk about the um, the pro life movement, um, and the the governor Texas uh, governor uh, Greg Abbott is, uh, is an alleged advocate of of uh, pro-life and a lot of the legislature is and it kind of permeates the, the culture here. And so how, how have things worked? Well, a big thing, the, fir- the first thing you think of in Texas with, with the pro-life is there's been all sorts of uh, uh, bans on on abortions. And uh, restrictions on abortions, um, and allegedly it's to protect human life, and human life is sacred, and all these things. And there's all sorts of laws, like there's a sonogram law that that inserts the government between the the a woman and her doctor, and forces the doctor to show her a sonogram of of the of the fetus. Um, there's a law that fetal remains have to be buried or cremated. There's a law that's recent that eliminates insurance coverage for non-emergency abortions. There's a law that bans dilation and extraction for second tr- uh, trimester abortions. This goes, goes on and on. This is a big, a big thing in this state. And the state funds religiously affiliated crisis pregnancy centers, crisis pregnancy that give out false and misleading information, and. Um, and so this is definitely an area where they've made a lot of progress in, in trying to beat up on women who want to have abortions and sh- have, have successfully closed down a lot of the abortion clinics and these sorts of things, or family planning clinics. But children are also at risk, and um, uh, you know, you know if, you're, if you're pro-life and you want to protect children, then presumably you want to protect their, their well-being. and. Um, Texas unfortunately has a broken child protective services program there's been um, poor funding and oversight a lot of turnover of the people working there and it's been a festering problem for years and years there's plenty of abuse and many deaths uh, and it's not not um, uh, not uh, something that seems to be addressed by the current legislature or any in the recent recent past there's a uh, uh, a program called CHIP, which funds health insurance for for kids that and that's that funding is at risk in Texas. In Texas, we have uh, very, very uh, um, liberal gun laws. There's no legislation legislation to protect kids kids from shooters. Open carry is now legal at universities. And our own UT is home to a famous 1996 sniper incident that having more guns would never have helped because he was way up on a tower, and he's a very good That was shooter. not
0: 1996.
1: 1966, I'm sorry. Yeah. 1966, quite a long time ago. And, and he was up in a, a sniper as a, you know, shooting folks, and there was no way that anybody was going to get him except up close. Uh, yet, guns are not allowed at the Texas state capitol, because <laughs> they're, they're, they're very pro-life for their own lives. Um, so if children are sacred and precious, why don't these same people fix, fix these problems? Mothers are also at risk. Uh, uh, Texas has defunded re- reproductive and preventative health care for at-risk women that has harmed women's health and inhibited the distribution of contraception and caused un- unintended pregnancies to shoot up so that uh, seems to be a, kind of an, an obvious mistake. Uh, Texas has the highest maternal mortality rate in the developed world, and there has been a defunding of the group that studies the issue and is trying to make recommendations to fix it. And, of course, mothers are generally the ones taking care of children, so if they're off dying, what's going to happen to those children, you know, these these beautiful, sacred things? Uh, another Another aspect of this problem is that Teen pregnancy rates in Texas, uh, because of poor sex ed, are very high. Uh, thirty-five thousand people or kids a year get pregnant before age twenty.
0: That's insane. Um, the Dallas. I'm not, to- I'm not a fan of that statistic. Actually. No, uh, <laughs> and, and not for the same reason that you're probably not. Oh, um, so when we say thirty-five thousand per year get pregnant before twenty. Uh, I don't think that that statistic is particularly fair, because what we care about... Is the rate. Um, right. Well, you can, you can graduate high school, get married, and you know, have been married for a year and a half by the time you're 20, just of your own volition. And I, I care more about what's happening prior to adulthood, prior to somebody being mm-hmm. out on their own. That's true. So I think that, that's an, now it's still very high. And evidently, in Waco, there's nothing else for teenagers to do but go out and spread (laughs) STDs. Right.
1: Well, and I have a quote, the Dallas and San Antonio areas, for example, had teen pregnancy rates 50 and 40%, respectively, higher than the national average. So Texas is failing, pretty clearly. Uh, Those same kids uh, who are pregnant get poor support for reproductive care. And teen, mother- teen mothers are generally re- relegated to a life of poverty as their educations and careers are cut short because child rearing takes takes priority. In Texas, uh, one cause of this is poor sex education. We focus on abstinence only in Texas, or or no no education at all, and textbooks focus on contraceptive failure rates, not not proper use. Um, on a completely different topic related to pro-life, uh, we've got the death penalty in Texas. Uh, the death, Texas death penalty is responsible for one-third of the national total of deaths caused by um, you know, the death penalty. Rick Perry's uh, uh, administration, when he was governor here, executed 279 people. And Texas, ironically, is running out of the drug they used for executions, phen- pentobarbital. And the man, manufacturer has stopped selling to Texas because they just say, you know, you're, you're using it for unintended purposes. And Texas has resorted to all sorts of backdoor tactics to try to acquire a supplier. And fortunately, we've got a lot of folks kind of monitoring that and, and make, making sure that they're, they, do, they do what they do legally. Uh, nationally, uh, a large number of death penalty convictions have been overturned with new evidence. And so you can't just say that these are, these are not innocent lives necessarily. So in conclusion, this sanctity of life argument is nothing more than propaganda and uh, cynically uh, there's this phrase that Christians seem to be pro-life until birth <laughs> when they don't care anymore. Uh, more clearly, I think they're pro-birth until, uh, for pro-births that they don't have to pay for. That, that seems to be really what it, what it is because all of the financial help uh, for folks that that are making children uh are, are not there, and my my answer is religions control reproduction because there 's no God who can create tithers, and those religions would dry up without those tithers uh, so christian based pro life policies in Texas are fraudulent and they are a proven failure, and that 's a failure of christianity
0: all right and for those who don 't know what tithers are they that 's a donation essentially tithing is is this. You're constantly giving 10, 15, 20% of your income right. on a regular basis. It's not just you the, went in and put a dollar in the... The origin of the word is tenth.
1: One-tenth. Yeah.
0: Uh, and, you know, I, I'm going to I'm gonna interject Please some do. words of caution. Okay. Much the same way that I don't like that statistic. I, I like honest, accurate arguments. I am frustrated by the amount of hyperbole. And, I, yes, I recognize that, ironically, I made some snarky comments afterwards, but... That wasn't meant to be an argument. It was humor. So, yet another school shooting has happened. Um, Today? No, no. Oh. Uh, in the past week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're having about... The, the rate is about one a week. No, it's not. And that's exactly what I'm going to talk oh. about. Because I could sit here and rant about how, um, you know, the religious right and, and con- ultra-conservatives in the gun lobby uh, just don't seem to want to care Uh, to do anything. What we first hear every time is thoughts and prayers and uh, you know thoughts and prayers and a $20 bill will get me a lap dance. Uh, (laughs) Thoughts and prayers do nothing. There's no demonstration of effectiveness. And I understand from somebody who genuinely thinks that they care when something like this happens, they offer up their thoughts and prayers. Oh, we're we're praying for the victims and the families of the victims. You can give your thoughts and prayers as long as you also do something, if you don't do anything other than offer thoughts and prayers, shut the fuck up because you are not helping. I understand how frustrating it must feel to, to think that there's nothing you can do, but offering up thoughts and prayers has been proven ineffective because it's offered up every single time we have something like this and it doesn't change. Now, after, after having beat up on the thoughts and prayers cloud crowd, Uh, Let me beat up on the other crowd, (laughs) okay? the crowd of people who are exaggerating statistics and engaging in hyperbole. I don't know how many times in the past week I saw that, that this was the 17th or 18th school shooting in 2018. No, it wasn't. It wasn't even close. You can go to Snopes and find out that depending on what statistics you actually use, there were somewhere between five or seven, and really only two that fit the public perception of oh my gosh, there was another school shooting where somebody went in and shot a bunch of people. If you take a look at the, the list of their 17 or 18 in 2018, whatever it was, um, you've got you know somebody uh, unrelated to the school after hours who fired a gun on school property because that's what they're counting, and this you know, or in some other a, a basketball game dispute, somebody f- f- fired a gun. Uh, those things are bad and they're different. And there's no good reason to exaggerate because one is too many. And that's the point that you have to make and that's the point that you have to drive home. There's no good reason to exaggerate because I'll tell you exactly what happens when we misrepresent the facts. You get some jackass like Ben Shapiro putting out a video talking about how the reactionary left is exaggerating the problem and it's really not as bad as anybody thinks and that gives people a reason to continue doing absolutely nothing about it to make good arguments and use good statistics, because it should be easy to say this should not happen. And not only does it not happen with the frequency in other countries that it does here, it doesn't happen at all in some of them. We can have reasonable discussions about how we're going to deal with guns and bullets and all these other stuff, but if one side is pretending that it doesn't happen and then offering up thoughts and prayers and posting their t-shirt of, Uh, The student asking God why he didn't stop the shooting and God replying that he's not allowed in schools, Uh, which, by the way, that's that's a flat admission from them that their God isn't everywhere and can be overpowered by legislation, except that that didn't happen either because there's no legislation banning a God from a school or banning prayer from a school. It's a complete and utter misrepresentation. But they want to throw out thoughts and prayers and their t-shirts, and then nothing gets done, and we come back to this over and over again. And the people on the other side are like, oh my gosh, this is the biggest problem ever, and the world is just getting worse, and it's going to hell in a handbasket. No, it's not the prevalence for the, the 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 rate for these things is actually actually declining. We live in the best of all possible times. Read Steven Pinker's book Better Angels of Our Nature or mo- even better, go read his recent Wall Street Journal ar- article that offers statistics showing that the world has has improved in almost every measure for almost every person on the planet. And that puts perspective on it, not so that we can pretend that there's no problem, but so that we can accurately assess what the problem is, measure the risks and rewards and figure out the best course of action to try to prevent this from happening. And I'm not going to claim that I know what it is and I'm not interested in getting in, into a debate about it You know, in the course of this particular show. I want people to argue honestly. I hate bad arguments and I hate them most when they're coming from the side that should be right and easily right. One is too many. That's all you need to say. On that note... Amen, Brother Matt. Yes. It is Sunday and I do have a background of you know, being preachy. <laughs> no, that's good stuff. I,
1: it, it's, uh, I,
0: I agree, and, and it's I, really I appreciate
1: when you call me out on my, on my mistakes.
0: Well, because uh, I learned from them. It's not like I, I didn't make them mi- I made a mistake immediately after calling you out on your mistake. <laughs> okay. <so. laughs> We, welcome to the Mistake Show. Yeah, we're, uh, we're all fallible. We, we are <laughs> godless heathens who are willing to acknowledge that we don't know, and we're also willing to acknowledge that we can make mistakes. And on that note, we'll go to callers. Uh, as a reminder, after the show's over, most of the people involved get together and go to dinner. Um, they'll put the address. It's, I think we're still going to Star of India, and it's 2900 West Anderson Lane, and if I'm wrong, they'll put something else up. Yummy, yummy buffet. But we've got Journey in Asheville, North Carolina, which is probably my wife's favorite town. Are you there? Yeah, hi, Matt. Hey, how you doing? Great, it's nice, am I talking to Matt? You're talking to Matt and Don and we're told that you have a proof of, uh, for God. We love those.
2: Uh, yeah, I guess we
3: should start in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God.
0: Okay, is that that in any way tied to your proof for God? Because simply quoting a Bible... Word, G-O-D, do you... I'm I'm sorry. The word
3: G-O-D exists, God exists. The word is. That's the proof. (laughs) Seriously,
0: Seriously? you (laughs) called... Hang on, hang on, hang on. You called in and said you had proof for God, and your proof is that there's a word? Yes, sir. Okay, Okay. unicorns exist. Exactly. Okay. That's garbage. That's, I apologize to everybody. That's a big waste of time. <laughs> I have six phone lines here with theists on, on a number of them. I'm, I don't know whether that was just a quick joke or what, but we, we are all dumber for having listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> we've got uh, Stephen in Tokyo. Thanks for waiting through that last call and what came before.
3: No, that was hilarious.
0: How you doing? (laughs) Pretty good. You you had a question for us, I believe.
3: Yeah, uh, I guess I just want to know, or I guess my question is, why is it that atheists don't believe in God?
1: Because we haven't been presented with sufficient evidence to, to warrant the belief. And it also okay, it mean, would also help, too, to define whatever God you're talking about. Yes. Because yeah. uh, uh, in my years on this show, I've, I've found that the, pretty much every caller has a different idea.
3: Some of them just think it's a
0: word.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I mean, well, I don't, well... I guess I just mean like a creator of the universe.
0: Sure. I can tell you this. I or- used to be a Southern Baptist. I used to be a believer in some version of the Christian God, and I'm not now because I found out that the reasons that I have for believing were either fallacious or flat-out wrong or unwarranted, and that prompted a bunch of study uh, and investigation because I wanted to find out, okay, maybe this Christianity isn't real, but you know, could there be some kind of God, and what kind of God could there be? And over the years, I I kind of explored this issue from both the standpoint of science and philosophy, what kind of God could there be? And it left me with the conclusion that there's no good reason to think that anything that we would normally consider to be a God uh, actually exists. And in some cases, there's no reason to think it's even possible for that thing to exist.
3: Okay, well, I get your argument about, like, The Judeo-Christian
0: God, any God, like okay, you you asked about just like a creator God, something that created everything. What reason? What reason is there to think that there is a being, a God, that created everything?
3: Well, I mean, it's like, how else did everything get here? So
0: that's a fallacy. Called the argument from ignorance. Called the argument from ignorance, essentially that the explanation or the God proposal stands until it's proved wrong. In your case, the way it's formulated, uh, Richard Dawkins would call it an argument from uh, personal incredulity, that just that you can't think of any better explanation than God. Um, but to say, there's a way, let me frame it this way. There's been a murder, and Don comes to me and says, the butler did it, and I say, oh, what evidence or reason is there to think that the butler did it? And Don says to me, who else could it have been? <laughs> okay. But I mean, do you think uh, that's going to stand up? <laughs> that's not even going to get a trial. The DA is going to laugh your ass right out of the office. <laughs> and that's why I think that we should do the same thing. The burden of proof is on the people who are claiming that there is a God or that there must be a God. And they, for millennia, have failed to meet that burden of proof, and that's why I can't believe.
2: I
3: understand that, but you don't think that, well, so, like I, okay, so back when I was a teenager, I used to listen to the show all the time, and I was an atheist for like three years, and then I thought about it, and I was like, how can there be like, literally an infinite universe? Who says there is? But. I know, but I mean, there's nothing behind it, like, oh, it's just here for no reason. Like, What what makes
0: you think that that's not possible? Whether or not that's actually the case, what makes you think that that's not possible?
3: Because what's the difference between that and then having nothing exist at all? Well, nothing
0: isn't something that could exist because nothing isn't something. Uh, it, it, It may be the case that it is impossible for there to have ever been a nothing because that has no properties.
1: But I think the the intellectually honest answer is, I don't know, and maybe I'll go try to find out,
0: but until I know, I'm going to withhold belief. Yeah, we we know there's something, and so the question you're trying to answer is, why is there something instead of nothing, or where did all this something come from? And
4: if you don't have an explanation,
0: then the only answer that is reasonable is to say, I don't know. It is not reasonable to say, man, I can't think of anything other than this hypothetical God model. So I'll just go with that because that's not the way reason works.
3: Well, I mean, but it's more than that, though. It's not that just, there's just like stuff. It's just that like, there's a whole universe and like the ecosystem, how everything seems kind of like everything does like, work together like, in synchronicity, or what's the word I'm looking for? I, I don't know what the word
0: may synchronicity, but I, I don't know how that applies. It seems
1: like you're, you're, you're giving also
0: another argument from ignorance, but changing the topic to biology. Yeah, I mean, it, so if you look at the whole of the universe, Stephen Hawking has pointed out that if the universe is fine-tuned for anything, it's for the creation of black holes. And the overwhelming majority of the universe is incredibly hostile to
3: life. Yeah, but just but even besides life, though, I'm just seeing like like stars and stuff, and how like the the stars can like juggle planets and stuff like that, and like you don't think that it's kind of like it just seems that it well, there's this thing called not,
1: gravity, right? Yeah, I mean this is just
3: just what the way gravity works.
1: And if there's you want to assert yeah. God made gravity, then then you you also have the burden of proof there.
3: <laughs> yeah, so, so, I'm not so, saying I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, doesn't it seem like how am I going to say this?
1: We are that, we are um, very fortunate, right? You're, you're going to say we're fortunate because we live and we exist and we have some understanding of our, ourselves and the universe and our, our place in it. And and gosh, isn't that miraculous? Is that kind of where you're no, going? Not even,
3: not even us. I just mean just exist. Like, doesn't it seem that it, it's too, it's too, I don't want to say too, it's too, like, I don't know, like, synchronized to be a coincidence. Like, how could it just be that? All this stuff disappeared and then it worked well, together. That's, like, even, not, that's, not,
0: that's not an accurate description. It's not like all this stuff just disappeared, okay? You have the laws of physics that govern the interactions of atoms and matter and everything and over a great deal of time, things change. We are what evolved under these particular circumstances. If the, the model of the universe had been slightly different in some way, and then something else might have evolved. And it would be sitting here going, wow, isn't it neat that this universe seems designed for me? No, it was, the universe wasn't designed for you. The universe constructed you because you're the thing that could fit in the universe. In this particular pocket of the universe, space.
3: I don't mean just people, though. I just mean the fact that... It,
0: it doesn't just apply to people. It applies to everything. It applies to you know, hydrogen and oxygen combining to make water. That's all governed by physics. It's chemistry. There's no reason to appeal to anything beyond the laws of physics or chemistry. And even if you don't have an explanation and you want to go beyond the natural, you need to first demonstrate that there is something beyond the natural that could be an explanation. Because otherwise, you're saying, wow, it's just, it just seems so odd that, you know, stars and planets and, 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 and life and all this other stuff. And you're like, it seems to me the best explanation is a God. Well, why isn't the best explanation universe creating pixies? Why isn't the best explanation that the physical laws well, of the universe produce this, which is what science seems to show?
3: So the universe just created itself?
0: No. Then So now you're talking about something different. Now you're talking about the origin of the universe, um, which we don't have an explanation for because we can't get beyond the Planck time in the first place. But there are theoretical models that don't appeal to anything beyond the natural. Or in the case of a multiverse, it it is... Supernatural prospect in the sense that it's not our local universe's nat- nature. Uh, but the answer, the, the, the issue is we don't have an explanation for the origin of the universe, and we may never have one. But not having one doesn't mean you're justified in saying, well, I can't think of anything, so it must be a god. The butler did it. Butler did it.
3: Okay, so you're saying there's basically no point in believing until there's, like, solid evidence. Correct. Exactly.
0: Yay, we like that. Good answer. You shouldn't believe any claim until it is supported by sound arguments and empirical evidence. And, yes, I know somebody's going to write in that there's an exception to this in the realm of philosophy where we acknowledge properly basic ideas and blah, blah, blah. But I'm talking about epistemic claims within
3: the natural world. Okay. Is it okay if I ask one more question, or did I use up all my time?
0: Oh, I'll let you do one more. We'll we'll move on after that.
3: Okay. So I just want to ask, like, so I know you've been doing this show for a long time, over twenty years. What what is it? What is it that you, uh, like, what do you desire from all of this? Uh,
0: For me, I like having the conversations. I like uh, trying to educate people on skepticism, critical thinking, on presenting an image of who atheists are so that we're not just, you know, baby-killing monsters trying to destroy God's favorite country. Um, and we get feedback from people who have changed their mind and come to realize that they didn't have good reasons for their belief, and so they were essentially forced by reason to give them up. Um, that's, that's about it.
1: From my perspective, so you- a, a lot of religious beliefs I, I consider harmful, yeah. and I'm trying to mitigate some of that harm. And it works.
3: But how, how is religion harmful?
0: How is religion
1: harmful? Well, I just did a whole yeah. show on, you know, how He's done 15, 54 shows. Teen pregnancy rates and,
0: and all these things because our policies are, are screwed up. And if your religion <laughs> tells you that, you know, people of the same gender shouldn't love each other or whatever, that makes you... Uh, advocate towards policies that marginalize individuals and marginalize their rights. If your religion tells you that uh, the God God created the world and this undermines science, if if religion tells you that you, you the world is yours to subdue and control, that undermines the potential of taking action against climate change issues and pollution. Uh, if your religion tells you that uh, you know. I don't know. Slavery. Well, yeah, it advocates for slavery. It advocates for genocide, um, oppression of women, bigotry. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm really interested in any religion that wasn't harmful in many different ways. And most importantly, I care about whether or not something's true. Because if it's not true and you believe it, that means there's something in your brain that is fundamentally flawed because you have become convinced of something that's not true. And if that can happen for that idea, it can happen for all sorts of other ideas. If you have a flaw in your ability to reason, you might be an anti-vaxxer, a flat-earther, a moon-landing conspiracy theorist. You might be opposed to climate change. You might might think that we should stop working to help feed the poor people and let Blue Apron do it. Right. Bad beliefs lead to bad behaviors. And we have to share space on this planet. So what you believe informs your actions, and your actions affect other people around you, just as mine does and Don does. Everybody says. Everybody.
3: I understand that, but I mean, in the grand scheme of things, doesn't it seem that like government does more harm than religion does?
0: Well, is the government doing more harm, or is religion doing harm through the government? By encouraging people to hold views and legislate those views. I mean, the government doesn't, ha- doesn't have an agenda. It, you know, in the United States, we have a, a democratically elected republic, and so you have representatives who uh, go there. Uh, but it's not, apart from the Constitution, um, it's not like the United States has some goal of, let's be Jesus's favorite country. But there are people who vote well, who are convinced that we should be Jesus's favorite country.
3: Well, the United States does have a goal of at least U.S. hegemony.
0: Um, that's possible, um, but not necessarily wrong. So if, if you have, so when you take a, take a look at something like, um, free speech laws, they're different around the world. And I think that some of the laws, for example, UK blasphemy laws and, and, uh, this idea that you could be in trouble for causing offense. I find that offensive and asinine, um, just so that somebody gets my favorite word out. Um, So we can have arguments and disagreements about the best way to do free speech and what the limits should be. Um, And it may be the case that the UK has the best model, and it may be the case that the US has the best model. It's probably not the case that Saudi Arabia has the best model. Uh, It's probably not the case that uh, Bangladesh has the best model where they are killing atheist bloggers. So we can have those discussions, but if you are convinced that you have the right case on free speech, uh, then teaching that to the world uh, is probably a good idea. You know, democracy may be the worst form of government apart from all the others, that famous quote. Um, But we're not, you know, necessarily imperialistic, and if we were, I would oppose it.
3: What do you but like, what do you but? you're saying the U.S. is not imperialistic? Correct. But I mean they're but they're like they've invaded the Middle East
0: yes is it is it a war Isn't so that, that we, like it, a, so that we conquer and own and build an empire? Yes okay I fundamentally disagree Where is it? Uh, please 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 go find the uh, the uh, the government statement that shows that's the case but anyway, I don't know what the hell that has to do with whether or not there's a good reason to believe there's a god. It does have something to do with whether or not, not religious religions can encourage people to do bad things. It can encourage people to do good things, but I'm convinced that by and large people do good things as long as you just give them a good reason, and maybe if you don't give them any reason at all.
3: Okay, I understand.
0: Is there any well. benefit, ir- irrespective of whether or not there's a God, is there any benefit that religions offer that is true and good, that can't be achieved without religion?
3: Uh, I'd say yes. Okay, what? Culture.
1: We, we've got plenty and, of culture without religion.
0: <laughs> I don't know Is religion no, responsible I mean, for yogurt? Because the culture that I know apart from, <laughs> from yogurt, um, there's plenty of secular culture.
3: I mean, but the concept of like, How civilizations can rally upon like one idea and then like survive throughout the decades, or not the decades, but the centuries, based on this one concept. Usually, that's how like if you look at like how societies have evolved, it's usually around religion.
0: Wait, wait, did you just say usually? (laughs) Oops. So unless it's always, unless it's always about religion, you just conceded the point
3: well i can't well
0: okay plus well, what has usually happened is not in all relevant say. to what is possible to happen the fact that we've had a history of one religion warring with another about which one has the right imaginary friend doesn't mean that that is in any way a true and good use of society to build culture to progress. In fact, I'd argue that it is the secular enlightenment that has dragged the, the planet kicking and screaming away from religion to where religion doesn't impact us as much. And people largely don't care about it. And churches are becoming more and more empty. And yet, as Stephen Pinker pointed out, as I referenced earlier, both in his book, Better Angels, and in his new Wall Street Journal article, while religiosity declines, and Greg, as Paul pointed this out too, the general state of the world, measured on a number of different axes for for socioeconomic progress and improvement, we improve. We are living in the best of all possible times and the least religious of all possible times. Sort that one out. but that's in the West,?: though. That's only No, it's in West. not in the West. See? Go search Stephen Pinker Wall Street Journal. The data okay, covers the entire people. planet. Yeah, and this article okay, I I'm- mentioned earlier in the show
1: is, is correlates religious belief with uh, social ills. And uh, you know if it's true that religion helps build better, better societies, then that would not be the case, so, that it, so that's clearly false.
0: I think though, Stephen, we might have just exposed the biggest problem in the way that you think. I referenced an individual with book and article supported by data, referenced, and instead of saying, hmm, I'll go consider that in case I was wrong, you asserted that it was only about the West, when the fact is what I just referenced is not just about the West. So you were completely wrong But you were so defensive about the position you already hold that you wanted to paint that information as if it only applied in, you know, area A. And that's simply not true. So go out and do the research.
3: Okay, that's fair. But I'm just saying that I can think of examples of where, like, for example, if you look at the Middle East, there's still high, or even India, those are highly religious cultures. So so what? but, but, But I'm saying if you look at their way of life, Yes. It, have terrible. you
0: looked at it? Because I'm not convinced that you have the first clue. I think that you have stereotypical ideas that you've just accepted without going to the data.
3: No, I, I mean I, I, I follow this stuff. Like I, oh. I look at, I watch, I follow geopolitics. So I understand like what goes on in the undeveloped world.
0: Is it? Be- it are, are they almost all universally better in every category than they were 30 years ago?
3: No some of them are actually
0: worse. they are, so go research what the shit I told you to go research rather than just assuming you know and if 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 okay. I'm in fact if I'm in fact wrong and you have data, present it and I'll acknowledge that I'm wrong and I will find a way to contact Steven Pinker so that he can know that he's wrong too. Now I'm not citing him as an expert. I'm pointing to you because he has sourced data for this stuff.
3: Okay, but I'm saying you think Iraq is better now than it was thirty years ago.
0: In a number of ways, sure. In a number of ways, yes. Does that does that mean it's good? Does that mean it's good? No, it could still be terrible. We're talking about improvement.
3: I okay, I, but I'm saying I'm saying that object. Okay, I think
1: you'll be able to find people that are worse off than they were 30 years ago, and and I think that uh, Matt's really arguing for the
0: general trend. Yeah, I mean, what you're doing is kind of going, oh my gosh, like I had a cat die of cancer this week. Oh my gosh, look how bad cancer is. Screw cancer.
3: That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, so you said that life is better off in, ob- objectively in all these countries than it was 30 years ago.
0: No, I didn't say anything about life. I said that we live in the best of all times and that by virtually every measure of societal health, we are better than we've uh, ever been. Uh, and it, and uh, God, are you going to keep interrupting this? I'm trying to clarify I'm sorry, this. I'm sorry, sir. Go ahead. Google Stephen Pinker, Wall Street Journal. Go read the article and call back some other time.
1: <sighs> Thanks for your call, Stephen. Or something.
0: I'm snarky as hell today. It's been a while since <laughs> I've done the <this> show. <laughs> Got to get that snark out, huh? It's well, it's, <laughs> it's frustrating because the call begins with. Hey, why don't you guys believe? Cuz we don't have good reason. Oh, what's your good reason? Well, I can't think of anything, you know, can't think of any other way the reason that there's something. So we go through those fallacies, then it's, "Oh, but why are you opposed to religion?" "Oh, cuz it does harm here 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 and here." Yep. Oh, but, you know, yeah. The fact that the world's getting better doesn't mean that we're anywhere near a goal, anywhere near yeah, We got a long way like, to go. Yeah. Utopia maybe an incredible distance away uh, and will forever be beyond our reach probably, but um, Teddy in Gainesville, thanks for waiting
2: Hi, how are you?
0: I'm doing pretty well, how are you?
2: Uh, not the best um, Oh, sorry I called, I called uh, probably about, I don't know if it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago or last week, but um, I, I spoke about hell at the time and I was... Uh, I, I I come from an agnostic background about six months ago. I just kind of went nuts and became very afraid of hell. And all I've really done in that time is read apologetics and counter apologetics and like every waking moment I have. And it's which, uh, very miserable. Ted, Teddy, which hell are you afraid of? Well, uh, mainly a Christian or... A- why, why would
0: you be more afraid of that than other potential bad afterlives?
2: Because I think there is slightly more reason to believe in those hells than the other ones that I've been presented with, and because they're the only ones that really say, uh, at least generally speaking, if you don't have faith in this uh, and believe it, then you will burn in hell and uh, of forever. So- um, So so basically
0: somebody has made a threat of a particular notion of hell and i'm i'm assuming you don't have any evidence that this hell is real
2: i don't have evidence that hell okay. is real but so somebody made a evidence. threat of a hell
0: that scared you more than other threats of hell despite the fact that there's no evidence that this place is
2: real well so i'm concerned uh i i've gone over the apologetic arguments many times and i think i spoke about this last time but i'm not really concerned about like really any of the arguments that would prove a deistic God, because those don't seem convincing to me as least as I've gone through them. Um, although I acknowledge the possibility that I could be wrong. What I'm I, I last week there was a I, in between the last time I called there was an apologetics group that came to my school. It was like there was some people with like Ravi Zacharias or whatever his name is. And sure. Several I, other that's people his name. Yeah and there was another guy's name started with a T I actually spoke to him Friday night uh like 20 minutes myself nice guy but anyway but um and then I went uh they presented the argument from uh for the resurrection and I I did a lot of studying with that and I find a lot of convincing arguments uh that would both suggest that it, there is a lot of reason to believe and there isn't a lot really? of reason to believe and I I mean it's uh Kind of like driving me nuts because you have
0: sure. Have you, you watched? Know, like have you watched my debate against Mike Lecona on the resurrection? Uh,
2: my Lecona? Li- Mike Lecona versus me? Yeah, yeah, I did, and I um, I I felt I I I don't. It's just there's a very large amount of evidence, and it's very confusing to really? me. Really? Because
0: because Mike presented no evidence no empirical evidence. He spent the first half of the debate arguing about Ouija boards and trash cans flying in order to poison the well and make people think that there was a supernatural component to serve as a justification for his only argument that he presented, which is basically the Bible claims that Jesus rose from the dead. What empirical evidence is there that Jesus existed, died, and came back to life?
2: Well, by the very, and I, I, by the way, I agree that that as that beginning part of the debate and a lot of other, it was very silly on his behalf, um, but there, there couldn't um, exist or not a reasonable expectation of empirical evidence other than historical evidence in that particular case. Uh, Which, I, if, I understand. You disagree I, with that? Uh,
0: so we don't have time machines, however, you, you, so if you're going with historical evidence, what you have is a bunch of reports and claims, but on occasion those historical reports and claims have evidence supporting them. For example, I wasn't around when George Washington was president of the United States, and so I only have books uh, with full of claims, and we could just say, well, everything that's historical is just a ten- tenet of faith, except that we have evidence for this, both people writing for and against political cartoons of George Washington. Um, we have a... a, uh, a string of connected incidents leading from that to now. Um, the, The issue, as Hume would address it, is you have to ask yourself, is it more miraculous that this event happened, as reported, than that someone would be intending to deceive or that someone has become deceived? Now, the idea that George Washington was president, is it more likely that George Washington was actually president and the evidence is largely accurate, or that somewhere between the founding of the United States and now, somebody made up a big lie and sold everybody on it? Which one of those is more preposterous? And Hume's advice is to reject the greater miracle. Note that Hume's advice is not accept the lesser miracle. That would be a mistake. But you should reject the greater miracle. And now, is it more miraculous that Jesus... Lived, died, and came back to life, or is somebody potentially mistaken or misrepresenting the events? Which one is more miraculous?
2: So, in one sense, it, it is more uh, likely that it, it was a legend or a deception. Okay, or all
0: right, and stop, 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 Teddy. No,
2: but stop, no, Teddy. But you
0: stop. can't put a probability, Teddy. On Teddy, it. Teddy, stop. I'm it, sorry. You say in one sense it's more miraculous that he rose from the dead. In what sense is it not more miraculous that he rose from the dead? What fantasy land that that you could tie to reality? Is it less miraculous that somebody rose from the dead than that people misrepresented, misport reported, or believed something that wasn't wasn't true?
2: Because you couldn't put a probability on a on a one time supernatural event. Uh, is, okay, is that that's not the way this works.
0: Okay, when I'm when you are gonna... assessing a claim. You compare it to similar claims. How many times has anyone ever been confirmed to be resurrected from the dead after three days?
2: So I don't think that's a fair claim because I don't think any Christians would make the claim that this is something, I mean, other than, you know, the the little bit in the book of Matthew, but make the claim that there is like, Any other time when anyone would rise from the dead. It doesn't matter. See, this
0: is the thing. This is the thing. If you would just answer the question, rather than talking about what Christians would or wouldn't claim, we could actually talk about this in a in a way that allows us to determine what is reasonable to believe and what is not reasonable to believe. How many times has it ever been confirmed that someone died and rose from the dead three days later, or in this case a day and a half later, that we're going to call three days? Well never, obviously. Never. Okay. So, given that we have zero occurrences of this, how many claims are there that this type of thing has happened?
2: I, I, I don't know. Several, I, a lot. I mean, not, not tons, example. but
0: several. I mean, there there are other, you know. Well, Jesus supposedly raised Lazarus from the dead. There are a number of died and risen saviors, although I'm not convinced that all of them necessarily fit. But at least one, and it seems to be several. Okay. Now, how many times has someone been convinced of something that was false, including miraculous things, when those things didn't actually ever happen? A a great number of times, obviously. All day, every day for the entire history of humanity. (laughs) Yeah. So, given that, the burden of proof is on the claim that this actually happened. And so, to meet that burden of proof... You have to provide something more than here's some people, unnamed people, anonymous people that we can't interview that lived two thousand years ago who claim that this happened. Well, by and large, when you when theists make the argument for the resurrections, the evidence that they sort. What's what's the most common piece of evidence cited by Christians to claim that the resurrection occurred? The gospel. No. Oh, the empty tomb. The empty tomb. Is there an empty tomb? Was that tomb filled with somebody before it was empty? Do we have any way to investigate that it was empty? Do we have any way to confirm it was empty? Do we have any way to confirm that there was somebody in there? Do we have any way to confirm what happened between the time somebody was in there and it was empty? Is there any way to investigate the empty tomb?
2: There's not, but wasn't there that
0: that it was like that? Okay. Now, if you look at the Gospel accounts of what happened on that Easter Sunday, do they agree on what happened?
2: i not not with all the details so. not, not with hardly any of
0: them. they don't agree. Whether the stone was rolled away ahead of time or not. They don't agree on whether or not there was an angel outside the tomb or not. They don't agree on who was there first. They don't agree on uh, who was told first. They don't agree on anything. And so you have to get rid of all that fluff, which is why they go to the empty tomb. Because the only thing that they mostly agree on is that the tomb was empty. One of them doesn't actually agree that the tomb was empty. When they enter the tomb, there's a young person in there uh, that may or may not be an angel. So it's not empty. So the thing that they all agree on is that somebody went to this gravesite... And maybe the stone was already rolled away, and maybe it wasn't. And Jesus' body, which had been in there a day and a half before, was no longer there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I've seen better magic tricks on crap shows. <laughs> now, yeah. if this is something that we can't investigate, can we then say Jesus didn't exist, Jesus didn't rise from the dead? No, we can't say that. But they have a burden of proof to me. And here's, here's the stunner you ready? Yeah. Isn't Jesus' resurrection the single most important fact about Christianity? Yeah. Isn't God supposed to be way, way smarter than all of us? Yeah. If God wants us to accept the most important fact, the resurrection, why the hell hasn't he provided any evidence Where is the documentation? Why isn't God presenting himself to us and saying, yes, it's true, I said so? Why is it that we have to go back to an ancient book where there's no Bible, New Testament 2.0, no clarification, and we look at the accounts and they don't agree? Why is their God silent about the single most important facet of their religion?
2: I mean, I'm. I don't have an answer for that. Nobody does. And, I, and that's and that's a very good. Can I? Can I just interject because this sure. is something. The the you know Tracy gave me a good answer with this too, but it's just something I, I've been. I, I don't want to say like tortured with, but just like something that has been gnawing on me because I, I go through these arguments again and again, and I'll. I'll find I, I'm I'm I don't want to say that I'm gullible, but I'm kind of gullible, and I'll find like the slightest argument in either direction, and immediately do a 180, at least on a superficial level, and I'm, I'm so terrified. Of you, don't, you don't have to like be worried the, about
0: the, that, Teddy. So here's the thing. There's, it, there's it, lots it, of people who would... Consuming uh, my life. There's a lot of people who would be viewed as gullible by outsiders and perhaps by themselves. As long as you recognize that you have a tendency to uh, not do a detailed critical examination of something, to not be sufficiently skeptical. As, as soon as you realize that, then it should be pretty easy to train yourself to say, you know what, maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't have enough information to conclude this. I'm, I'm going to stop being terrified and stop accepting things until I have really, really good reasons. And not just when some apologist says something that I don't personally know how to refute. Because that's the, one of the dirty little secrets about apologists. Most believers sitting in the pews have no idea what their Bible says. They have no idea about the history of their religion. They don't know how to think skeptically. They don't have the tools to investigate, which is why when Josh McDowell writes evidence that demands a verdict and hands it to everybody in the churches, they're like, yeah, look, this smart dude just vindicated everything I believed, and now I don't have to do any work. Nobody knows this stuff. So don't beat yourself up for not being able to rebut something. You were curious You called someone who may know, and I may be wrong, or I may not know. But when it comes to the fear of hell thing, uh, for me it was really simple. Why am I afraid of this particular hell more than another? Well, it's because it's the one that I was raised with, and it's the one that is most popular in the country I live in. If you had been raised in a Muslim country, you would probably have a fear of a Muslim afterlife. Well,
2: so I'll I'll say something. Like, I don't come... From a really religious family at all, like they're super atheistic, agnostic. You live in Gainesville, Florida. You're
0: surrounded by religion, Christianity in particular, all the oh, time. I,
2: I, I'm just going to college here. I, I, I grew what? up in like Jewish South Florida, so, um, but like a- atheist Jews, kind of. Um, but you shouldn't have moved. You know, it's because I- yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're slumming it, like, man. But. Uh- <laughs> <laughs>
2: anyway, go ahead and continue. And
0: I want to let Don jump in on this too because I don't want to talk the whole time.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but um, yeah, but just, and, and I do notice that, uh, so I'm actually like right now kind of going through a Christian like kind of phase with it. But I've noticed that like during this whole like crazy thing, like I'll, I'll feel like really scared of Christianity and then I'll, I'll like go like read the depictions of like the Muslim hell, which is a lot like, more clear. And then I'll kind of like, switch over to being more afraid of that one for a while and I'll get dragged into like the Muslim apologetics with like, you know, the infallibility of the Quran or whatever. And that'll last a week or two. And then I'll hear like some stupid argument to Christianity and it bounces back and back. And it's like, I've never really dealt with this in my life. And it's just like, it's, I'm aware that it's an emotional thing, but it's just like consuming me, like like this like fact that's like living in my throat, and I, you, I can't. You
0: have to recognize that somebody could come up to you every single day with a new threat that you can't prove, and then you'll be scared of that threat. You have like, to start to realize like, that the time to believe something is after the evidence is presented, and the time to be afraid of something is when there's good reason to think that it's real and a threat, because while you're sitting around terrified of some threatening afterlife what facets of your actual life are being negatively impacted by you worrying about what might happen in somebody's afterlife
2: well i mean i mean a lot but again i mean in the argument like that my like that like crazy bit of my brain is like if hell isn't real this is like the most irrational fear you could have and if it is it is the most rational fear you could have it's like literally the worst thing that you could conceive of so i hate to
0: tell you but that's a really lengthy tautology which says if hell is real then there's good reason to be afraid of it
2: i i know and i know it's not a logical thing and i know it's just an emotional i I don't like appealing to pascal's wager because i see how stupid it is but i keep at least in an emotional level keep coming back to it and it's like knocking on my head like this like crazy let, let me take a crack
1: here um I've argued that uh, the, the three pillars of uh, apologetics are, are lies, um, logical fallacies, and emotional manipulation. And when I argue with theists and, and debate, if they use any of these things, I, I point out that they've lost because they're, they're, their best arguments are these things that are unacceptable. They, they don't lead to any notion of truth. And if you are using these arguments or using these tactics, then you, you are sort of admitting that you don't have anything better. And so you are being emotionally manipulated, and if they don't have intellectual arguments, Intellectual arguments that get you to the truth, or 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 reasons to believe in the claims that they're making, then then you should ignore them because they're they're using they're using slimy manipulative tactics in order to get you to believe something. And uh, you know we, we talked about what what's the harm of religion? Well, here's a here's a prime advan- example of boy, this religion sure is harmful because it's torturing this person. Uh, for no reason. And, um, and there's no good reason to believe in these, in these, uh, in this religion.
0: And I tell you, I tell you this, Teddy, I, I, there's another caller waiting and they have a question about the afterlife. Are you, are you listening to the show or are you only on the phone listening?
2: I, I, I have it on my phone, but does it, does it like last on the phone? If, if, oh, you're only I can pull it up. I tell you what,
0: let me just put you on hold and take this other caller because there's, he may, his question may have something about the afterlife that might help you.
2: So okay, thank I'm, you so I, much. I just, really
0: appreciate it. I'm just going to put you back on hold for a minute. Thanks, Teddy. Oh, okay. Thank you. All right, Joey, are you there? Yeah. Joey in Akron, I, uh, you, you had a question about life after death.
5: Yeah. Um, Welcome but first, I'd just like to get uh, your position clear Oh um, my... From a past episode, I heard that, you, you know, you said you didn't believe in life after death. Correct. That, um, you know, there's not a lot of good reason why you should.
0: Oh, actually, I, I've gone way further than that. Um, I think the idea of a soul is the single most obviously wrong and dead subject in all of theology. Because of what we know about identity in the brain, the fact that physical manipulation of my brain can fundamentally turn me into a different person, different memories, different personalities, different beliefs. We know from patients who've had uh, hemispherectomies, uh, splitting the corpus callosum, that you end up with two distinct personalities communicating independently. One of them believes in God; one of them doesn't. You can look up uh, V.S. Ramachandran's talk at—I um, forget which conference it was—but it's probably almost a decade ago now. Um, everything that has been attributed to the soul. Um, has either neither been connected to anything like a soul or identifiable as a function of the brain, a function of what the mind does. So, when my brain dies, do we have any good reason to think that anything substantial that makes me me continues to live or exist in any sense at all? Uh, Because if we manipulate my brain, does that mean that there's you know, like let's say that my atheism is a result of some brain damage because I used to be a fundamentalist Christian. Maybe I got hit on the head. Maybe something happened in my brain. I've got a tumor. It's not a tumor. Uh, that's, that's the worst Arnold impression ever. It's not a tumor. <laughs> I thought it was a Jewish doctors in Florida. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't. yeah, Arnold would have been, it's not a tumor. Uh, so that, that's what makes me an atheist is this tumor. Does that mean that there's a Christian soul trying desperately to manipulate my brain and failing to do so because of this tumor, because of this thing in my brain? Um, If so, when I die, doesn't that soul go on to heaven because it was a Christian soul that was trying to do this and something about the physical brain blocks it? And if that's the case, then the, the soul notion becomes even more useless because now it has nothing to do with what I do because maybe what I do is... How do you tell the difference between somebody who's got a soul that wants to do bad or a brain that wants to do bad with a soul that wants to do good? Uh, and, and by the way, in those hemispheric patients where you end up with two distinct personalities, is that, does God stick an extra soul in there? Does the soul get split in half and half of it goes to heaven and half of it goes to hell? I mean, and Sam Harris has pointed out that in the case of um, twinning in, in the fetus, um, does the soul get implanted at conception And then it splits into twins. Does God add an an extra soul there? Do they have a half a soul or maybe a fourth of a soul if we get quads? Uh, And then sometimes the twin is reabsorbed. And so if that happens and there was a second soul, does that mean now there's a person with two souls? None of this makes any sense. And all of it is contraindicated by what we know about the brain, about how my personality manifests, about how my desires manifest. And that's a long answer to say that. And if there's not no, only, if there's
1: no soul, then
0: then what's what of you is going to be in the afterlife? Yeah. Not only is there no evidence, good evidence for a soul or an afterlife, but there's incredibly good evidence that this cannot be the case. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a really good book. But, I, go ahead. I'm going to look up the name of this book so I can recommend it.
5: Yeah. Um. I guess I would just say I don't necessarily believe in you know the concept of a soul and the. You know traditional religious sense um i guess it's just more of you know i wonder if even if someone does have split brain personality there i feel like there still is um an essence to them that's like that's not separated um it's sort well, of like a, there's a body <laughs> there's there's a there's
1: a Part of the brain, call, uh, part of the body called the brain that, that is there, and presumably there is some you know basic intents like they got to eat and breathe and these sorts of things. So, so no, it's not like there's two people there.
5: I, I'm not able I think, to find. Well, this I book think too, if, if this person I think was able to meditate, they could still I think experience themselves. Um, I think there's always like a bedrock of consciousness. That they can look to to be like, you know, this is essentially what I am, and um,
1: well, that might be true. But how does this I, get I, us to an afterlife?
0: I mean, it's not like well, it's, it's not like you have reason to think that consciousness survives death.
5: Well, we assume that you know, when we're when we're done, we're done. When we're dead, you know, that's it. But when you think about, it, I mean, there's our cells die all the time. You know, we're, right now you're a different person. Physically than you were when you know you were a teenager yes but I mean yourself- but, but there's
0: those- an aspect of continuity where I am constantly redefining me as I change as well when I die when my body shuts down when my brain shuts down when there is no more electrical chemical energy uh, being produced in my brain uh, what would make us think that anything about my consciousness would continue on in any recognizable sense I know my atoms will continue and they'll fertilize the plants and whatever decides to eat me or entertain the medical students that you know do autopsies on my remains. But the, the, the self, the person, the, uh, what, what we would traditionally identify as a soul uh, seems to me to be consciousness and the mind, which are the product of a physical brain. And I don't see any reason to think any of that survives death.
1: Even though the idea might be appealing, it's just wishful thinking.
0: Yeah, it's it's very appealing. I'm sure somebody will probably text me with the name of that book. Uh, I actually saw the author at Imagine No Religion 9, I think, outside of Toronto, uh, and got a copy of his book. And for whatever reason, his name and the book's name are escaping me. Margaret Downey will beat me up over it. But anyway, I want to go ahead and get back to Teddy. But yeah, I don't believe in the afterlife because there's no evidence for it and there is some evidence against it.
3: Mm,
5: okay. Um, I, I got another friend. Do you think you could talk to me to uh, a bit about veganism?
0: No. <laughs> We've
5: we
1: kind, of, we kind of exhausted that Thank subject.
0: You, so I'm happy to have the discussions um, outside of the show. It's not relevant to the show, and tons of people complained, including people involved with the show, uh, that that call with vegan gain seemed to just be... Uh, Oh, Matt's going to use the atheist experience as some sort of prop to, I don't know, have irrelevant discussions. Um, okay. <laughs> and and, yeah. and we do and get the, on tangents occasionally. Well, that's yeah. Fine. That's fine. But, you know, the fans of of the dude that called, uh, who, you know, doesn't get to lecture me about morality because he threatens people with knives. Uh, but they don't seem to... I'm starting to... Th- th- oh, I shouldn't say that. No, we're not going to go anywhere near it. I'm not going to make <laughs> yeah, a statement you start, a Thank stop you. on the show. Thank you, Joey. <laughs> I will stop now. Uh, let's get... Uh, so, Teddy, you got to hear
2: that? Yeah, yeah, I got to hear that. And I. Uh, that's one of the best... Uh, I, I've heard, like, the materialist arguments, and really, and and I do... I mean, even before I got into this, I I had heard that, and I, I still agree with it. Uh, that is one of the best reasons... Yeah, I noticed
0: noticed the call and I thought it might be useful because when people come up to you with a threat of hell, you get to ask them to demonstrate that there's any reason to think that anything about you survives death. That now puts a burden of proof on them uh, and changes the discussion from something terrifying to something fact-based that they can't meet the burden of proof for. Otherwise, you know, we'd have a Nobel Prize for discovering the (laughs) soul. And as a side note, when they come up with that 21 grams thing, uh, that's bullshit debunked. <laughs> bullshit. Uh, and you can just like Google 20, 21 grams debunked. And yeah, we haven't weighed the soul. And, and by the way, most of them would have found that strange as the soul is immaterial and therefore couldn't have been weighed in the first place. So, All right, I want to try...
2: Can I ask... Go ahead. Could I ask you one more little question? Because this is... a. Uh just i I think like briefly mentioned this but you didn't go over the reason why um and and it was just a claim i encountered last night and i like could feel in my gut that it was wrong but i wasn't able to that friday night that i i couldn't articulate why and it was like i i we were talking about the resurrection i was there well you can't um prove something that doesn't have you can't like there's no reason to believe in something or say something is true if you can't like have empirical evidence or if it's uh, infalsifiable. And they say, well, you can't have empirical evidence for that claim or, or like the claim I just made about like truth states. And, and uh, it's like it's so stupid, but that, I can't. That's what that's what I was talking
0: why. about when I said that somebody's going to email to say, "Oh, you know, for philosophical things and foundations and blah blah blah." You're not going to have empirical evidence that you know you're even living in a reality, and so now you get into issues of hard solipsism. All I'm talking about is that if you and I agree that we live in the physical world, and somebody's going to make claims about events occurring within the physical world, there needs to be compelling evidence and argument for the claim. Now it may be the case that something can be believable without physical evidence for that specific claim. For example, if you tell me that you just got a new pet dog, I don't Mm -hmm. need any, you, you should be able to provide physical evidence for that, but I don't need any to take you at your word for a number of reasons. It's an entirely mundane claim. People get new pets all the time. Dogs are a common pet. We know this. We have mountains of evidence for this actually occurring. Um, So there's no reason to dig in any deeper. If I believe you and I'm wrong, it doesn't impact or change my understanding of reality. It just changed whether or not I think you're truthful or sane. Uh, If I believe you and you're right, any time spent investigating it would have been wasted. There's nothing about the claim that is extraordinary. And so extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and mundane claims don't. If you tell me that your name's Teddy, as you have when you called into the call screener, I'm willing to accept that your name's Teddy, but what I'm actually accepting is this. And we don't think in this precision regularly because it's difficult and it's time-consuming. I don't care what your name is. You told the person you wanted me to refer to you as Teddy. Whether that's what's on your driver's license or what you go by in real life doesn't matter to me. I'm going to call you as respectfully as i can whatever name you want to use and if you tell me at the end of the call my name's really steve it doesn't fundamentally change anything because it's not relevant to what we're discussing so it's a yeah, mundane claims versus extraordinary claims
2: yeah no that no that's a, a pretty good explanation of it 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 is teddy though <laughs> okay um, i don't believe
0: okay.
2: you <laughs> 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 Okay. Okay. It's not Uh, on your on your uh, driver's
0: uh, license. It's not Theodore. It's Teddy. Oh, it it is. Oh. Oh, Oh, we're teasing. God damn that guy. Sharp as a knife. Thank you, Teddy. Thanks, Teddy. Uh, Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Don't worry. Don't worry about hell. Uh, (laughs) There's there's another aspect to that, which is, what can I do about it? Right. Hey, you've threatened me with hell. Uh, and you haven't offered any demonstration right. that it's real or that anything about me can exist after death. But D- Gee, that God's a dick. What can I do about it? <laughs> and now, this is why when we talk to, talk to folks, you want to ask, what do you believe and why? So what is it you think I can do about it, and why are you convinced that I can do something about it? Because there are a number of Christian models where I can do nothing at all. Belief mm-hmm. is the result of a gift from God, God graces you with faith, and so there's fundamentally nothing I can do about it. Right, there's the whole Calvinism thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> the worst determinists on the planet. <laughs> I and sit down with this guy, a great Calvinist, uh, and I mentioned him before because shortly after the discussion, he went on a mission trip and was was killed. Uh, I read it in the newspaper. I really it made me sad because I wanted to have more conversation with him. It was so much fun, but I was like, if you think everything happens according to God's plan and none of this matters. And I was like, then why are you trying to witness to people? And he goes, I don't have any choice. <laughs> and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> I want to have lunch with this guy all the time now. At least he's consistent, huh? And, uh, and I can't. <laughs> uh, we got like 18 minutes left. I don't know if there was a particular call you wanted to go to, no, but uh, no,
1: no, I don't have any, any favorites.
0: I was going to mention, uh, once again, dinner after the show at star of India, uh, 2900 West Anderson Lane right there. Okay. You did promise one caller that you would take them. I did. Uh, And because we're running low on time and I don't know that anybody's going to get to the topic that she want to talk about. Linnea in Seattle, thank you for your patience so much.
4: Hi, no problem. Um, So, I don't know if I can get through this, but I'm going to do my best to try. So I do mantle isotope geochemistry and geochronology, which is basically a bunch of fancy words saying I study how old rocks are and where they come from um, using radiogenic isotopes. So basically Yay. the whole underpinning of my field is based on radioactive decay. And I hear so many creationists calling and saying, I don't understand radioactive decay and therefore the Earth is 6,000 years old. I thought I would just do... a as quick as I can and as accurate as I can, a quick primer that should be understandable to a layman of radioactive. Uh, how
1: many minutes are you talking off? about?
4: I don't know. Hopefully under 10.
1: Oh, boy. Oh, <laughs>
0: that's a lot. <laughs>
4: <You> guys, sorry. <laughs> that's
0: all. Right, that's all right. Go for it. Because
4: at I worst can case. Go back if you want.
0: Worst case, we'll, we'll hang up and take another caller. That would be worst case. Uh, best case, this becomes a clip that Mark will pull out of the show and will live on as a, an incredible uh, description for laymen on radiometric dating so that uh, they can all be armed uh, to engage with the young earth creationists.
4: Fingers crossed it's the second one. So for your listeners, let me first go over a couple of things. Every atom is made of protons, neutrons, and electrons. The number of protons in an atom determines which element it is. But you can have atoms of the same element with different numbers of neutrons. Atoms of an element with the same number of protons and a different numbers of neutrons are called isotopes. Some elements have stable isotopes, meaning they don't decay over time as well as radioactive isotopes, meaning they undergo radioactive decay and lose protons, neutrons, or or go under other complicated things to turn into other atoms called daughter isotopes. Through experiments and observations, scientists know at what rate these radioactive parent isotopes decay to their daughter isotopes. This is described as the half-life, the length of time it takes for half the radioactive isotopes in a system to decay to their daughter product. The long and short of it is by looking at the ratio of daughter isotopes to remaining radioactive parent isotopes, we can tell how old something is. It's a bit different for carbon dating, which is really the easiest method to explain. So I'm going to use that as my example from now on Um, because in carbon dating, we measure the amount of radioactive carbon left to stable carbon. Um, But the principle still holds for any radioactive dating because it's the same physical principles of one atom decaying to another. So let's talk about radiocarbon dating. Carbon-12 is the stable isotope of carbon we care about. And carbon-14 is the radioactive isotope. So this works for organic dating dating organic things because during their lives, animals, plants, et cetera, are constantly exchanging carbon with their environment through eating, breathing, et cetera, et cetera. And thus they're refreshing any uh, carbon-14 that decays with new carbon-14. Where carbon-14 is formed is a long complicated story, but we know through experience experiments, sorry, the ratio of 14 carbon to 12 carbon that exists in living animals. When an animal dies, it stops exchanging carbon with its environment. And since no more carbon-14 is entering the body, eventually it all decays away. We know pretty well the half-life of carbon-14. And since we know the initial radio of ratio radio, wow, of carbon-14 to carbon-12, we can determine the date the animal or plant died by measuring the current ratio of carbon-14 to t- carbon-12 in a dead animal or, you know, a bone or something. If you're listening to this, I don't blame you if I've completely lost you on that last bit. This is some complicated stuff, so I have an easy analogy. So let's pretend our dead animal or plant is something yummier, like an M&M cookie. Our radioactive and stable isotopes are M&M's. Let's say we know we have eight blue M&M's and two orange M&M's to start with. The orange M&Ms are 12 carbon. They will not change over time because that's a stable isotope of carbon. The blue are 14 carbon. They're going to change. They're going to decay. They're going to go away over time. Let's also pretend that we know our orange M&M half-life... Oh, whoops. Sorry, my blue M&M half-life... Yeah, there we go. I almost made a big mistake There is one week. So after a week... Half of our blue M&Ms are going to be gone, um, and they're going to turn into other colors. That's another whole complicated thing that we're not going to get into. So let's pretend we just baked this cookie, um, and we know there's one fifty the orange stable atoms that there are the um, eight blue radioactive atoms. After one week, one half-life has passed, we're going to have... Those same two orange M&M's left, but we're going to have only four blue M&M's instead of the original eight blue. After two weeks, we're going to have that same two orange M&M's, but we're going to have two blue M&M's. After three weeks, we're going to have two orange M&M's, just the same, but we're only going to have one blue M&M left. And after four weeks, there's only going to be the two orange M&M's left. So... Using this, we can tell like a two-week-old cookie from a four-week-old cookie by the ratio of orange and blue M&Ms in it, right? So we'll have after like, a, after, like uh, one week, we'll have two orange M&Ms and four blue. We know that. After two weeks, we'll have two orange M&Ms and two blue. So we can tell a one-week-old cookie from a two-week-old cookie. That's great. But what happens after four weeks when there's no more blue M&Ms left? Could we tell an eight week old cookie from a four week old cookie? We can't. This is the same with radiocarbon dating. After a certain point in time, all the carbon 14 will have decayed away. And we can no longer tell how old something is past that point. Now creationists will often say, use this to say a piece of rock has organic stuff in it and scientists claim the, orga- the rock is several millions of years old. But the carbon only says it's X thousand years old. Right. That's right. Because after that X thousand years, everything will look the same age in carbon dating because all the carbon 14 is gone. And we can't tell the difference between an X thousand year old um, piece of organic carbon and a million year old piece of organic carbon using radiocarbon dating. Just like we can't tell between the four week and eight week old cookies. But does that really mean that everything is only X thousand years old? No, we have way more radioactive dating methods, using isotopes with longer half-lives to look further back in time. So, let's pretend we can also have red M&Ms and green M&Ms. Um, red M&Ms are unstable; they don't want to stay red M&Ms. They decay away with a half-life of a month. And green M&Ms are just chill; they don't want to decay away they're stable. So again scientists through complicated stuff which I'm not going to get into again but if you want to do the math yourself it holds up. We know the initial uh, ratio of green to red M&Ms. So again we're going to use the same ratio to make things easier. So let's say using these new M&Ms after a month we have or starting with a fresh cookie we know there's again four times as many red m and as green m and so we have eight red M&M's and then we have two green m and after a month passes after this cookie is a month old we're only going to have four red m and and then we're going to have two green M&M's 2nd month passes two red M&M's 2 green after month three one red m and again the same two green m and and at month four there's no more red M&M's left but using this other isotope dating sense, uh, system, we can tell the difference between a uh, four-week-old cookie and an eight-week-old cookie. Um, it's just like we—it's just over a longer time period. So, if we find a rock or something with organic stuff in it, and the organic stuff only dates to X thousand years old, we can use other dating methods. Uh, to pick up where radiocarbon dating kind of falls off. Just like we can use the red-green M&M system uh, to tell that difference between a four-week-old cookie and an eight-week-old cookie, where with the blue and orange M&M, we can't make that, uh, we can't tell the difference.
0: Yeah, So. so there's different dating methods which overlap. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's pretty important because
1: it helps you calibrate different methods and you, it helps you give independent confirmation of the same date. Right.
0: So I think, I think that you ought to record this and get with perhaps an animator friend of mine to make a video that actually has the M&M so people aren't trying to follow it in their head because my initial instinct is to punch it up and make it funny and instead go... We have a swimming pool, and we have people in there all the time who are peeing in the pool. Uh-oh. We know that as long as people are constantly going into the pool and peeing in the pool, the pool will have this amount of pee in it. At some point, people stop coming to the pool, and the filters start to filter out the pee, and so there becomes less and less pee in there. And at some point, there'll be no detectable pee left in the pool. And from that point on, we'll never know when the last person was in there. And but we're doing we, diffie q. If, if you're, we also you're set up a, a, a video camera that takes a picture every four weeks, and we start you know, two weeks after people are done. Now we can tell, you know, it might have been 10 years since anybody was in the pool. But then there's algae, so.
4: Right. Uh, right. So anyway, the M&M's is so that if any people are watching, they can just grab a bag of M&M's and hopefully be able to <laughs> it's explain making me hungry. Themselves.
0: Yes, thank you for coming up with something that other diabetics like me were. <laughs> hey, I want to listen to that again. So if we take permanent <laughs> away and we take two more remdes away... Yeah, another, another point
1: you probably should emphasize a little bit more is uh, is the um, statistical nature of decay, that, that it's not
4: yeah, so deterministic. One of the things that I, I wanted to get to is that, yep. you know, some weeks we might actually have that one... Uh, last red M&M hanging on for another month. But this is sort (laughs) of basically the most basic primer I could give on radioactive dating Mm -hmm. uh, to get a layperson to start along that journey. And there's one more disclaimer that I should make, and it's that most of our long-term dating systems are a lot more complicated and a lot weirder than radiocarbon dating, but they use the exact same physical principles. So the red, green M&M, analogy is just it's it's just an analogy and that it won't get you to understand uranium right uh and dating so, and so what's the punchline?
1: what's the age but, of the earth based on this <laughs> this is this is based yeah, on this? yeah. <laughs>
4: sorry
1: what's the age That's, of the earth
4: check, But yes yeah. um the, the point is the Earth is older than 6,000 years old. It is older than the thousand years old that radiocarbon dating will tell you if you just date everything old. Because there's, radiocarbon dating is only valid for a certain point. Mm-hmm. After that point, everything looks the same age. It's like not being able to tell the difference between a 25-year-old and a 50-year-old.
1: What does strontium so, decay tell us? Don is 25. And and I'm almost...
4: (laughs) (laughs) Really? Wow. Um, But if we use Uh, other uh, methods uh, of radioactive dating, uranium, strontium, argon, we can see further back in time, and they will tell us the actual age of the Earth. I'm I'm serious.
0: I'm serious, Linnea. Send me an email. I have an animator Uh friend who has worked on SpongeBob who may very well be interested in... uh, and doing some kind of animation for this to okay. see if we can get a video okay. to teach people.
1: And how old is, I the, know. Hell is the earth? I how, know. how old is the how earth? Don wants earth. to know how old the earth
0: is.
4: Four and a half billion years old, yes. give or take. Thank you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the big thing is, is that we're not claiming that we've dated it down to the date. As some
1: Christians would yeah, do. There's, there's margin of error. You know, these October. Things because
0: of the statistical nature of them, right? Christians think they can date it down to a date <laughs> in October. Uh, yeah. But, uh, October 2nd, right? Yeah. But the thing <laughs> is, if you think that the earth is closer to 6,000 years old than it is to 4 billion years old, uh, you're just wrong.
4: Yeah.
0: I mean, oh, by the but, way. Yeah,
4: that is the answer. Point of it, but we, I was trying to be nice to get people to listen. Oh no. and. We've got we've got to
0: go, and I want to get to one more caller real quick. Sorry, yeah. uh, right. one last question for you, Linnea, I know this isn't doesn't come from dating rocks, but is the Earth flat?
4: Oh my God, no! Damn, it. I knew you guys were going to ask that. Okay,
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, make sure you listen to this next call. Thanks. Oh. <laughs> hey, Victor in Brooklyn, how you doing?
2: How you doing guys? Uh
0: well we've got like I'm I'm gonna let you go for a couple of minutes, maybe, but we've only got like two minutes left in the show. I apologize for waiting. Yeah, you-, you know
2: what it is? It's like a topic that can't really be discussed in this brief amount of time. Oh, I
0: think it can. Is the earth flat uh, or an oblate spheroid?
2: <laughs> well, it's not a pair shape, I'll tell you that. That's absolutely ridiculous. Uh Every picture of Earth is completely fake. NASA admits uh, this oh, of Earth, the <laughs> only the only real picture of Earth is from the
4: fake moon landings.
2: Uh,
0: uh, oh, so the moon landings were fake too. Hey, you know how long it takes to discuss this topic? You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah,
0: we, I we, will, uh, we had a uh, we had a lunar eclipse not too long ago when- and <laughs> Now, I will say <laughs> that gives me a prime opportunity to rant about one more thing because I, talk, I hate about bad arguments. Uh, the Earth isn't flat. It's an oblate spheroid, and we know, and the moon landings weren't fakes, and we know all that, too. And even some people who formerly denied moon landings like Joe Rogan have come around. Um, but you can make bad arguments for anything. And I saw a video the other day that showed two pictures of the moon taken from the the uh, one from the Northern Hemisphere and one from the Southern Hemisphere. And, of course, when you're in the Northern Hemisphere and you take a picture of the moon, then you go down the Southern Hemisphere and you take a picture of the moon, uh, it looks upside down and you have a slightly different view of the surface. Because it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, even flat earthers probably think the moon is at least partially round. Maybe only round on the side that, you know, you can see. Who knows? I don't know how they do this stuff works.
1: It does have one face to us all the time. Here's the problem.
0: If you see this video, and it's a short kind of, ah, ha, ha, take that, flat earthers, it's awful, and it's stupid, and it is a terrible... It's so bad that I'm convinced flat earthers made this video so that they could debunk it. Here's how you can demonstrate what the problem is with this video. If you're sitting in your living room right now, and you have like a ceiling fan, or let's imagine that you have a, a, a globe dome light in your thing, put an X on it. Draw a smiley face on it, whatever you want. You can do it in your head. You don't have to ruin your light fixtures. Go to one end of the living room, look up and take a picture. Go to the other end of your living room, look up and take a picture. What you'll find is that those two pictures, one of them is reversed, and you can see a slightly different portion of this, despite the fact that your living room is flat, unless you have a really weird living room. But you probably have a flat living room. So this particular video does not in any way debunk the flat Earth stuff. It is an awful argument where somebody who didn't understand that they have have this picture of a curved Earth with somebody standing here looking up at the moon and somebody standing here looking up at the moon. If you take that same thing and you make that flat, you end up with pretty much the same pictures anyway, which is why I think this was an argument from Flat Earthers to debunk. However, I know there are people who just intuitively seem to know that the Earth isn't flat, and so anything that seems to reaffirm the idea that the Earth isn't flat gets passed around on social media to your self-selected and... Uh, Facebook selected list of people who happen to all agree with you and so it gets passed around more and more like the 18 shootings claim it's in the ec- 2018 echo, echo
1: chamber effect
0: right? or the lock her up or make America great again or any of these other things Obama's uh, gonna get your guns you got to exercise some caution and not just share or agree with something merely because it seems to agree with or validate a position you actually hold or think is true. The passing around of misinformation and bad arguments does no one any good. It doesn't get us any closer to the truth. What it does is it makes it easier to say, ah, you're in this camp, and you're in this camp, and roar, let's not worry about what the actual information is. A bad argument is a bad argument, whether it is a bad argument for why we should help each other out and share space because Jesus wants us to. No, that's a bad reason. It's a crap reason. We should do it because we're sharing space and we should care about the truth and we should care about good arguments because those are the single most effective tools that we have. Because if you present a bad argument, the opposition has no work to do. They get to just debunk this argument without making their case, without meeting their burden of proof. But if you present good arguments and good data then I'm not going to hang up on you. You stick it, stick it to them, I'll make them work. See you next time. Thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll see you all later.